But the excitement that counts is the excitement of, of having a period of fasting, reciting Quran. Someone on the outside can't make sense of this. I was talking to my neighbor and my parents, you know, elderly, you know, late 70s, were doing the whole routine, long summer fasts, long nights in the mosque, uh, was something a young person would get really scared of. But it's the most exciting period of the entire year because there's something really beautiful about what you find in this discipline. The neighbor said, well, Ramadan, Eid must be like beyond, off the scale. I said, well, actually, it's hard to say. The excitement of Ramadan is just something you can't you know, re replicate. And so there's an excitement that comes if you tread this path, a time of greater Quranic recital, extra prayer, fasting, breaking fast with the family. So feeling that excitement of a chance to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of a chance to sign off a little bit from the rat race, that's a beautiful excitement. Dr. Sohail Hanif, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Dr. Sohail Hanif, if Allah allows, we once again have the opportunity to greet and complete the great month of Ramadan. I want to uncover the secrets of this month, what it should truly mean to us as believers. I want to move beyond the basics and really uncover what we should be striving to achieve out of this month. How should we treat its minutes and hours? And how do we know whether, as the hadith suggests, we have lost its blessings or gained success out of it? Now, I have called this session The Thinking Muslim's Guide to Ramadan because I suppose we want to mindfully navigate this month with an eye on limiting the habitual and ritualistic nature of the month so that we plant its fruits in our souls. Now, let me start with a very basic question. We know that shaitan is locked up in Ramadan. What does this actually mean? Many of us may still sin in this month or we may still find it difficult to obey our Lord. How do we understand this hadith? Sure, uh, thank you uh, very much. Uh, scholars have said quite a few things about what this might mean. But if we zoom out of it, uh, before we go into any uh, details here, the point ultimately is, and it's palpable, and it's real, and anyone who's looking for it finds it, you know, without any doubt really, which is that righteousness is easier in Ramadan. It's easier to feel something from your worship. It's easier to get this impetus to do good in, in this month. And so that's just the, this fact we, we have to understand. There is something palpable of ease in goodness that we all have to uh, direct ourselves to. Now, the scholars who talk about uh, what you might call Islamic psychology in a more classical sense, they talk about the human heart as a sort of receptacle which receives messages. Uh, some of these messages are inspirations to do good. And scholars say, oh, this is an angelic uh, sort of message. And so we are receptive to angelic messages. We don't see the messenger, but the heart connects to the unseen. And scholars say that the uh, etiquette with angelic messages is, is, is to follow them. So as you follow your good impulse, let me give this person some money. Let me hold the door for that person. Let me actually take some time out from my work and actually listen to this colleague who's clearly distressed. These are inspirations. And as we listen to them, we, are, we, we, we get more of them. And so the heart is a connects to the unseen and we're guided if we approach that uh, appropriately. Mm. When it comes to negative messages, they say there's two distinct sources. 
again, with some debate uh, within that. So one, uh, one category, they call them uh, satanic messages, which are thoughts that come to the mind, inclinations that come to the heart, which either calling to just outright sin, why don't you eat this thing or drink that thing or say this word or hurt that person or, or so on. They say the mark that it's satanic is it moves from topic to topic. So if you don't look at this thing, it'll say, all right, why don't you eat that thing? You don't do it. All right, then why don't you do something else? And then it might say, all right, why don't you pray but feel really proud about it? Because, you know, so it's, it's someone just trying to make you trip up. And they say that's the mark of a satanic uh, whisper. And the end goal of the satanic whisper is always about doubt in God, always. How do you know there is a God? How do you know this really is a prophet? How do you know this, there's anything real? Uh, disliking, so receiving those thoughts of doubts is human. Disliking them is, is iman. And combating them and avoiding them is, is, the, is, is the struggle of faith, uh, is, is, is the struggle of iman, which is about coming back to what's real. Uh, now, the, the last part of what the heart receives is, is from within. The human being has an animalistic nature, if you like, which is called the, uh, the nafs or the ego. The nafs is still there. The nafs is the part of us that you can simply call it animalistic. I want, I want, I want, I want. So they say the mark of the nafs is it doesn't change topic to topic. It just wants and it wants and it wants and it wants. Uh, and what we have to do is control. And that's what fasting is. It's the most powerful tool of self-control. And that's why the, partly why the devil is weaker. Because the devil is like pulls the reins of this animal within. And if the animal... The reins are a bit weaker, the animal is a bit hungry, uh, the devil has less to, to pull on. So the bottom line is that if we approach this month seeking the good, if we approach this month with fasting, if we approach this month seeking the discipline that the month offers, we will find a power, a force, an ability to do good that we won't find in, in, in any other season. And if someone has no self-restraint and no interest, then the animal within is the animal within. And it will call to whatever it calls for. Uh, and that person has done it to themselves. The season was beautiful and they turned their back on it. That's just the, the simple summary. And there's different discussions of what chains of devils might possibly mean. So in the absence of shaitan, do we uncover who we really are in this month? I'd say for sure, which is partly what the discipline is and the partly what the Quranic part of this month is. The self-restraint uh, is, is extremely important. Again, I'm not saying the absence of, again, this idea of chains does not mean you might not get bad thoughts okay. or you might not get inclinations. Don't do those bad thoughts come then from us, from our inner selves, because shaitan is no longer influencing us in this one month. Well, all that goes back to the reality of these chains again. Okay. Yes. Uh, what does it signify? Is it the incapacity of the devil or is it a particular weakness? So there is a debate about... Uh, correct. The, uh, ah, right. Correct. What's the reality of, of a devil in chains? We know that it's not a, a free devil, but it might not be, uh, you know, an utterly in a cell, uh, you know, off somewhere, you know, in some, you know, in some island somewhere. So thoughts can be there, but they're weaker and your chance of growth is stronger. So it's a shame on us if we don't avail ourselves of the opportunity of this month. No, absolutely. Should we feel excited about Ramadan? I mean, there are some who lack excitement, partly because the, the, their lives are very busy and um, uh, 
Of course, they will still fast and they will still pray, but Ramadan, in a sense, does slow them down. It makes them tired. Uh, it we can't, you know, just the absence of a morning coffee may impact on one's uh, work rituals. Uh, do we have to feel excitement in this month? And is the lack of excitement an indication of lack of iman? So over here, it almost goes back to this idea of the heart as a as as a vessel that receives. Uh, and so the spiritual masters talk about two states that overcome all people. One is called bust, which is you could call excitement or elation. And one is called qabd, which you could call restrictedness, constrictiveness, feeling a bit of difficulty and stress, which mirrors day and night. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised day and night for every human soul. And so experiencing day or night in any emotional sense is not in and of itself good or bad. But what is good or bad is how we relate to it. And again, the proper response to each of this. So uh, excitement from Ramadan, because your mum makes sevya every night or samosa and all of that stuff. At one level, it's still a beautiful thing. We can talk about cultural Ramadan and you know what that means to people. So I'm not, I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. That's how children actually come into this. That's why cultures develop in a particular way to encourage everyone finding something. But the excitement that counts is the excitement of, of having a period of fasting, reciting Quran. Someone on the outside can't make sense of this. I was talking to my neighbor and my parents, you know, elderly, you know, late 70s, were doing the whole routine, long summer fasts, long nights in the mosque, uh, was something a young person would get really scared of. But it's the most exciting period of the entire year because there's something really beautiful about what you find. In this discipline, the neighbor said, well, Ramadan, Eid must be like beyond, off the scale. I said, well, actually, it's hard to say the excitement of Ramadan is just something you can't, you know, re replicate. And so there's an excitement that comes if you tread this path, a time of greater chronic recital, extra prayer, fasting, breaking fast with the family. So feeling that excitement of a chance to connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of a chance to sign off a little bit from the rat race. That's a beautiful excitement. The Prophet said, وسلم, uh, whoever's uh, good deeds please them and bad deeds displease them, that person is a believer. There's an emotional response there. Some people feel emotionally down, and this is true as well, as someone very cl close and dear to me. Uh, they find the act of fasting so difficult, so difficult, that when they when Ramadan comes, it's like a... It's a, it's, it's, it's a challenge. But they don't respond to that by disliking Ramadan. You then, you have to, you have to, you carry on the duty. When, when your child is crying at night, you might get excited, you might get irritated. The point is, are you there as a parent who's doing their duty? And so both the constrictedness and the elation are both doors to, to God, in, in all honesty. If you have this difficulty, but you say, oh Allah, give me strength, I'm doing it for you. That moment of purity is a very, very beautiful thing. And if you have the excitement saying, oh Allah, I'm coming towards you, I, I can't wait. That's a very, very beautiful thing. What is not beautiful is to misread these. To say, I don't like Ramadan and I dislike fasting and I can't believe this is happening. That's a sort of bitterness with what you're meant to be doing. That's what someone has to fight. Or the excitement of, I can't wait to party all night and the great Ramadan dramas and that has to be controlled. And so it's more, again, our response to what comes into the vessel that really will set the scene to what we're going to get out of this month.
I mean, we live in in quite individualistic societies, and uh, a lot of what we do is about the self and to uh, to to pleasure oneself, to to make uh, to achieve a type of life where there is constant gratification after constant gratification. I wonder whether Ramadan on on that level has something to say about this type of lifestyle, and whether there is anything in Ramadan that works against this worship of the self. Absolutely, because if you look at Ramadan, which we'll come to this, there's like two events coinciding. One is the fast and one is the Quran, and we can discuss both events. But if you look at just the the act of fasting, fasting is nothing but self-restraint. There's no dhikr, there's no movements, there's nothing in it. It's just a knot, and it's a very big knot. Just saying no to the most habitual, again, the most base animalistic survival instinct. And survival is important. But in this time, you're saying, hang on, I don't need this survival, as, which has become this sort of grazing habit, uh, or also the uh, restraining from the sexual desires. But fasting doesn't stop there. Uh, in the words of, 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 of the hadith, fasting is a shield. And so the hadith says, the Prophet said, وسلم, you shouldn't rip the shield. And how do you rip the shield? It's by speaking ill of others. So there's a lot in the hadiths about how talking ill of others is spiritually eating their meat. And that goes against the point of the fast. So again, the fast, therefore, the basic fast of self-restraint is meant to be a ground on which we build something. And what we build can go as high as we aspire. That's why we have the cycle of every year. Where are you now and where are you building? The ground of it is this basic self-restraint. But then the hadiths talk about restraining the tongue. Hadiths talk about on a fasting day, especially you shouldn't be arguing. If someone wants to pick a fight, the response is, I'm, I'm fasting. So the idea is, this is just a foundation now of really understanding what you can do in the space of controlling yourself. Because it's only by restraining the self that you become human. Because the self is that animalistic thing that we share with all creatures. The spirit is what makes us different. Ramadan is about the world of the spirit. Uh, and so in this sense, yeah, the entire month, and especially the act of fasting, is nothing but sabr. And sabr is nothing but self-restraint. And it's not self-restraint for the sake of it. It's self-restraint by putting your wishes last and Allah and his messenger first. And as you put Allah and his messenger first, you realize, oh, the parents come in front as well. Oh, the neighbors come there. Oh, the child came there. Oh, the animals are there. And you realize, oh, I'm actually right at the back of the queue. That's what sabr is. And before we enter the space, we think we're at the front of the queue. That's what the selfishness of the age is. Uh, and so sabr is, is, is this key virtue. You spoke there about the, I don't know, the virtues of Ramadan, or the aims of Ramadan. Well, let me ask you about the aim behind Ramadan. Now, we know that the Qur'an talks about Ramadan as a, as a way of achieving taqwa, as a way of achieving piety. But beyond this, do we have uh, any indication in the text, in the hadith, or any indication from the, from the time of the Sahaba, or in the books of the scholars? Uh, pr- do we have an indication about precisely what, this, what the month of Ramadan should be achieving in terms of objectives? Is there a higher, I don't know, spiritual... Uh, objective that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sets for us in this month of Ramadan? So I think we can tackle this 
through the Quranic passage, which deals with uh, with the with the holy month, which is about six odd verses in Surah Al-Baqarah. Now, if we if we look at this, that's why I said what what the passages lay out quite clearly is that Ramadan represents the convergence of two independent events. So we can start there actually, and then analyze each one separately. What are the two independent events? The passage in the Holy Quran starts by saying. Fasting has been prescribed for you like it was prescribed for those before you that you might be people of taqwa. So that's event number one. What does event number one signify? Which is that whether it's Muslims, either Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, or previous nations, fasting has been something they've been asked to do. It's not specific to us mm. because it has an advantage. It leads to an outcome. And the outcome has been spelled out as well in this word of taqwa we should come back to. And so what that implies is Every nation is a, given a period of discipline through self-restraint in this act of fasting because it's important. has many advantages and we'll summarize them with the word taqwa. So we were meant to have one of those two. But then why in this month and not in another month? That's the second event. And the second event that comes three verses down. So the verses in Surah Al-Baqarah start by saying fast. Then they go on to saying, well, it's only a few days. And if it's difficult, then you don't have to if you're traveling or sick. And there's a sort of expect, ex, uh, dispensation right at the beginning that, well, if you still can't do it, you can feed someone. Then it comes into the, in the third verse that the month of Ramadan has been chosen because the Quran came in it. And so that's the second event. So the Ram- month of Ramadan then is a blessed period because we're essentially celebrating revelation. And so what's the convergence is that the month of fasting, which we needed to do to connect to Allah, was coincided with the month in which we were asked and tasked to celebrate this revelation. And what's the connection of the two events? It's because that's how the book comes down. Uh, the first revelation to our Prophet ﷺ didn't come in the hubbub of the city or in the market. It didn't come during a feast. It didn't come during a party. It came after a period of reflection and devotion. Uh, the Mount Hira in Mecca is not uh, a simple walk down the street. It's a significant journey. To walk, you take one hour up, you go into the cave. Uh, the Prophet ﷺ would take simple provisions. Uh, and so it was a period of, of, of devotion, of not giving in to the desires of the flesh, of seeking what is beyond. And that scene is where revelation, is what pulls almost. That's where revelation comes. Uh, prior to this, in the Holy Quran, we're told when the Torah was given to Musa salam, it wasn't in the hubbub of Egypt, it wasn't in the marital setting of Midian and the work on the farm, and it wasn't with the tribe of Israel. It was go off to the mountain. And in the mountain, he, uh, he had promised to Allah 30 days of, of devotion. And then 10 more were added. And then the, the revelation came. And so there's a... Just uh, just like in the Hajj, we are reliving moments of the great moments of human history. In Ramadan, we're reliving something. And a lot of the Sharia is tying us to a sacred past. So fasting to commemorate revelation is the sacred past. And what it implies, before we come to again each by one, just the combination first of all, what it implies is that what we're ultimately trying to do in this month is to receive revelation. Now, the revelation is cut off with our Prophet ﷺ, but this Qur'an uh, is not a simple two-dimensional book. 
this Quran in, in its own words is Quran on Kareem. It's a Quran that gives. It's a generously giving book. And what we are seeking is to have the book enter our heart. That's what I mean by receiving a revelation of the book. By reciting it, by turning to Allah through it, by observing this period of fasting alongside it, we are trying to enter a space of real devotion so that perhaps something of its wonder and its mystery and its lights and its infinite gifts can touch us. Uh, and so the meanings of the Quran don't stop. In the words of the, of the poet, uh, The meanings of the Quran are like the waves of the ocean. They don't stop. The ocean doesn't stop smashing against the shore until the end of the ocean. And that's what the Quran is. And so we just have to face it, right? face the ocean. We have to believe the waves aren't going to stop. And we have to prepare ourselves to receive. Uh, and the, the gifts of the ocean are more beautiful than the pearls of, of, of the gifts of the Quran, more beautiful than the pearls of the ocean. So just to say in one step then, Ramadan, the convergence of events is we are reliving a sacred past. We are commemorating the devotion of our Prophet Wasallam, uh, which begins this beautiful gift to mankind that we are uh, blessed and fortunate to partake in. So we're remembering our Prophet as well, وسلم, which is also important uh, to remember him, send the salawat and blessings on him and following him, which I also maybe we can come back to as well. And then there's this sense that in this moment of preparedness, what can we receive of the gifts of revelation? Yeah, but let me ask you about that. So a lot of us set uh, very high lofty goals at the start of Ramadan. We want to be like a Shafi'i in our recitation of Quran. And we, you know, subhanAllah, the life comes in the way and, and we may fall short. So practically, how do we, uh, what you've said there is is amazing. Uh, and it's it's a, it's really a, uh, an amazing piece of advice. How do we uh, reach the goal of accessing the Quran so that we're in this conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout this month? So there's a few there's a few things here. First of all, you mentioned Shafi'i, so for people who are who aren't aware, it's related from him and also from Abu Hanifa as well. Yeah. That they were um, their habit was two khatams of the Quran a day, which we find very hard to imagine. I was reading today that Imam al Bukhari in Ramadan used to have a daily khatam in Ramadan. So every breaking of fast, he would time a khatam of the Holy Quran and he would say that there's a special dua that gets answered with every khatam. So there's one thing just to stop here, first of all, before we, you know, just to stop on this point, which is just that from the time of the earliest community, and it's always important to have an interest in the early community, uh, the salaf of this ummah, the, the earliest generation to understand this religion, their sense, their experience, their understandings are necessarily authoritative uh, because they've received this from the people who were taught by the Prophet It's not a textualistic experience, it's lived experience. So the fact that from the early community it's reached us very clearly this extra devotion to worship and particularly this extra devotion to Quranic recital, there's something there that we should take home. That as much as we can, we should try to read more of the Qur'an than we normally do. And as much as we can, we should try to uh, at least have a complete recital in, in, the, in the blessed months, uh, which is a very uh, common practice. 
uh, and more if possible. So that's just something for us to take right off the bat, that there should be an increased recital and it should be uh, see if we can push more than we than we normally do outside of this month and try to at least have a Khatim Ramadan if possible. Now, what brings to mind is that uh, people like Shafi'i and Abu Hanifa and Al-Bukhari, their recital is, is all integrated. What I mean by that is they recite easily. They've memorized the book because they recited frequently outside of Ramadan. The Arabic is very good. They have all the tools they need for a very profound, again, receptivity of gifts. I don't want to call it just a rational reflection. It's actually just a reception of what Allah SWT pours into the heart as one recites. We might not have all of those gifts. Uh, and so that's why we have to resolve. Uh, and it's one of the best things we could do for ourselves. People think about personal development. One of the best things you could do for personal development is to make a plan to prepare these gifts in your little, you know, your personal CV, if you like. So if you can't recite Quran, literally, you don't know the script, then why don't you start? It might not seem greatly spiritual and meaningful, but you have to understand you're investing in yourself. And the journey itself is a beautiful journey of, it's like fasting. It's submission, it's surrender, it's seeking Allah from what's come from Allah. Uh, it's not self-centered. It's rather, you could say revelation-centered, you could call it prophet-centered. Uh, and it's about following. Uh, so so just to say that if you can't recite, I'd say make a plan to learn the alphabet. Whatever it takes, uh, the Prophet said, Sallallahu whoever recites the Quran beautifully in a, you know, in a beautiful, skillful, spiritual sort of recital, then he's reciting in the company of angels. And whoever recites the Quran and it's difficult, is it? But you know, you're, you're trying. Uh, then the hadith says that he has two two rewards: the recital and the struggle. It goes back to what we said at the beginning: when fasting is hard, if you respond to it positively, that hardness is also a gift to you. And so that's all I'll say first off the bat: that just wherever you're at, if you make a plan to improve recital, improve the Arabic, it's a beautiful journey. It's it's a it's a beautiful sort of surrender. You learn a lot about your inability. It's very humbling, which is also a key here to what we're trying to achieve. And you're investing in your future, meaning as you improve, you'll be able to be like a an Abu Hanifa. You know, in the end, as the years go on, that the Quran is really with you. You carry it with you. Uh, Imam Shafi said, "Ilmi ma'i." Uh, I can't remember the rest of the poem right now because wherever I go it's with me it's not in the bottom of a chest it's not anywhere else it's just with me and there's something beautiful they used to say about the early Muslims uh, I don't know whose words these were I think these were non-Muslims observing them they would say their gospels are in their breasts uh, or in the words of the Holy Quran these are clear majestic signs and where are they stored in the breasts of people who are given knowledge all of us can be these people just start a journey it doesn't have to be stressful but if you start it it'll be beautiful so i'm just starting right from the bottom end right now uh if you've not memorized much quran i'd say try to memorize some more quran review what you've memorized and try to set a goal of memorizing a bit more again the memorizing part is about there's a beautiful surrender in it. There's a beautiful humility in it. And you're investing in what you can do by having the Quran with you. And you'll see a beauty in the repetition 
you won't find if it's just a, a one-off reading from a book. So yeah. that's a recitation, right. the memorization. How about uh, making an attempt to understand the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Should that also be part of our routine in this month? Correct. So that's where we're coming to now. We talk about the whole ingredients, right? So improving the recitation and memorization will be just a beautiful thing you're spending on yourself. And that's my... If a person in, in the month, uh, so, you know, someone who, who doesn't know how to recite the Qur'an uh, with full tajweed or someone who uh, has memorized very few verses of the Qur'an, um, you know, in, in their childhood and, or has forgotten verses of the Qur'an, would it be sufficient for them in this month to just focus on, on those two aspects? For sure. Uh, like I said, it, it's a sort of, there's a few pieces here and you want to put together a program that maximizes for you uh, what you're putting in and what you're getting out uh, from this month. Having some Qur'an in you is very beautiful. As, as the early Muslim was said, a house without any Qur'an is like a ruined, a heart without any Qur'an memorized in it is like a ruined house. It's like an empty home. So put something in it. This is the, the first part. Have some recital. And there's something in, in the act of recital where you're connecting with the revelation. You really, uh, and that's why Imam al-Ghazali said, the first inner etiquette is to really have veneration, reverence. That's something modern, moderns find difficult, which ancients or even people who live today in a non-modern setting find more immediate and easier. The idea that there is a sacred, the idea that there is a way to connect to a sacred and it's very, very meaningful. We moderns struggle with this and we have to come back into it because the first part of even reflecting in Imam Ghazali's words, is this two things. He goes, He calls them two separate points. You have to really understand how tremendous the speech is and how tremendous the speaker is. That is making your heart receptive. That's called facing the ocean so that the waves can come. And you don't need to understand Arabic or anything. It's about the purity of your directedness towards Allah. And reciting the Arabic, giving the Arabic importance, is exactly a part of that. This is how it was revealed. This is how the Prophet ﷺ taught the companions. The Prophet ﷺ promised rewards for every letter, even the Alif Lamim, really signifying it is sacred. And something in connecting to the sacred opens up this receptivity. That's why we have to stress trying to be able to, and if you are able to, then doing it, the act of recitation. But now engaging the Qur'an doesn't stop there as well, as we've said. And this month is about receiving um, uh, receiving guidance. That, that, that's what the, what the passage says. شَهُرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنَ هُدًا لِلنَّاسِ وَبَيَّنَاتٍ مِنَ الْهُدَى وَالْفُرْقَانَ It's the month in which the Qur'an was revealed. A guidance for man or mankind. Uh, and again, clarifications of guidance and, and a criterion. So we're seeking guidance. Guidance includes right practice, good behavior, good conduct, self-rectification. Guidance includes understanding really what is right in human society and human values. Guidance implies understanding who is Allah in all of your life. Uh, when you have a misfortune, where is Allah in that misfortune? When you have success, where is Allah in the success? So guidance is everything. There's no breath without a need for guidance. And the book has all of it. The book has all of it. Uh, if you approach it for that purpose, it has all of it. And so now, when it comes to approaching meanings, 
This is where, again, I would say to people, if you really want to invest in a journey, I would still say start learning Arabic. It's a very beautiful journey. It doesn't have to happen all in a day. It could happen in 20 years. It, there's no stress in it. It really gives back to you. And the little bit you learn, that's what's amazing. The little, little piece of grammar, you'll see it in the Quran and you'll benefit from it. So I'd say don't make it complicated for yourself. But if you can start that journey, it's a beautiful journey. And alongside that and before that, we have, alhamdulillah, we, we are blessed in the English language. We've got beautiful lessons online. We've got no shortage, really, of tafsir resources. We've got no shortage of lots and lots of translations. Uh, people will always say, well, the translation is the same as original, which is, which is obviously understood. But there's so many people you'll meet. I met a gentleman. He literally converted within days of reading Surah Al-Baqarah in translation. It didn't take much for him after that. And we all know many, many people. The book speaks. The book has meaning. That's why for Abu Hanifa, the translation is sacred. Because it's still rendering and a part of the meanings of the revelation. So for Abu Hanifa, you can't test translation without wudu as well. So there's this idea that translation is sacred. It's understandable. There could be errors. It's a part of it. But uh, one shouldn't belittle uh, this tra tradition. And like I said, it has a, a status of, uh, of Quran-ness according to some of our Islamic jurists. And we have no shortage of books which exposit surahs. Uh, and so what we should try to do is approach whatever is easy and manageable. Some people like um, religious English, some people like plain English. And alhamdulillah, we're blessed that there is a menu. We can approach what speaks to us. There's audio books of uh, uh, Professor Abdul Halim's translation is on audiobook on Audible. There's no shortage of resources. But what we have to understand is just, just a couple of things. One is that before you start that session or that sitting, ask Allah for guidance. It's really important. It's not a, a rational or self-deserved activity. It's about we're receiving something uh, from the unseen. And Allah has to be the one we're turning to. This is really important. A second one, if you've understood something in that session and it really impacts you and you think, wow, this is beautiful. I'm gonna, it's going to change something for me then we have to be grateful for that. It didn't come from us. Uh, we have to be grateful and ask Allah for more. وَقُلْ رَبِّ زِدْنِي عِلْمًا And say, oh my Lord, uh, give me an increase in knowledge. That's important again. That's, that's a part of realizing it wasn't my brilliance, it's guidance. If you see it like that, like I said right at the beginning, then more comes. This is uh, another part. Another thing to keep in mind is absolute and utter humility. And humility comes in two ways. One is understanding that the more empty you come to the book, the more you're allowing it to fill you up. So you have to feel lost a little bit. You have to feel uncertain. You have to feel, I don't know. Please teach me. Uh, I haven't found. Please find me. That's one aspect of humility. So you come really trying to learn. Don't come thinking, yeah, I know that. I know that. I know who Pharaoh was. Yeah, I know the story of Moses. Uh, that's not the point. The point is you always come fresh. That's one angle of humility. The other angle of humility that's really important is to understand this book has guided civilizations and scholars across space and across time and it will keep doing so. So don't assume that everything you read must make sense to you in the way that you wanted in that moment. You say, I'm puzzled, it doesn't make sense to me. And that, that's a sort of arrogance where you think everything has to make sense to you the way that you wanted to make sense to you in the moment you wanted to make sense to you. It's a guide for all of humanity, it speaks at many levels. The book has law, it has history, it has ethics, it has the unseen, it has the seen. Uh, and we have to be a bit humble as we approach and try to learn from it. But as long as we're humble, 
as long as we're seeking guidance and as long as we're grateful for what we receive, then, then we can learn. And we can learn from the English and we can learn from the Arabic. Can you recommend a good book of tafsir for, uh, for, for those uh, who can only access the Quran in English language? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a tricky one. And the reason why it's a tricky one is for a number of reasons. Is that uh, personally, I think the journey I've taken over the years has been more Arabic-centered. That being the case, I can't talk through pure personal experience uh, as much as I would like. Uh, this is the first part. And the second part is... There are a number of really, really good books and then some people might not like them and then it's a sort of, are you recommending the book that has X, Y, Z? And so what I'll say is uh, there's uh, we, we have no shortage of books with helpful footnotes and commentaries. There's no shortage of online lessons. If I could ask you perhaps, what has helped you perhaps in a translation setting? Well, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Abdul Halim's uh, mm-hmm. translation, Professor Abdul Halim's translation, which is fantastic, really. Um, I think for many Muslims and non-Muslims who want to access Quran, it's a it's a very it's a it's a it, it allows you to access the text in a language that probably most people would find comfortable. Mm-hmm. So that that's been that's been great. Actually, a lot of online lectures. I mean, if I may recommend uh, a, a tafsir session that you did, maybe a two or three years back during COVID on Surah Yasin during Ramadan. I think it was with the Cambridge uh, Muslim Cent, Muslim College, uh, which I found uh, excellent, alhamdulillah. And actually, there was some great, during that period, there was some uh, excellent tafsir or explanations of the Quran that I found on the net. Maybe we can get together afterwards and just recommend a few for, for our list, for our viewers. Um, but as you said, I mean, I, I feel that I, I, I probably agree with what you've said, that there is just so much material out there. Uh, often we can fool ourselves into believing that uh, we don't have the, the knowledge or the prerequisites to, to appreciate the tafsir of Quran. And so we hold back. But there is something always available on the net or, as you said, in text form for for Muslims of all capabilities and abilities. I, I sure, the only thing I'd, I'd stress a lot is just the centrality of having a mentor, mm. stroke teacher, yeah. stroke circle. Yeah. Because the Qur'an ultimately, uh, Allah Taala revealed it through, the, through a, uh, if you like, an embodied teacher, if you like, in the angel Gabriel, alayhi salatu wasalam. The Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, taught it, and it was taught. The book is Qur'an, before it was kitab, uh, Quran is recital. So obviously, we've stressed a recital is a very much a living engagement. Uh, before it was kitab, which is the recorded in pages, and it was preserved through both activities. Uh, the page recording is part of its preservation, and the recital is a part. But it will always be a lived engagement, which is the recital, which partly we've we've uh, we've talked about. But the other part is it's always been part of a transmitted teaching. It's through transmission that we connect to the Prophet And that's why I strongly recommend what you've said right at the end, which is connecting through live teachers. It's very, very important. Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the, the explanation of the Qur'an was in the Prophet And that, that core of what he was, was taught through lived experience. Like we said, his companions and their companions. And that's what's informed all of the Islamic uh, tradition. So to approach the book and be divorced from its people 
uh, I will not say one should not do that, but that's not the complete what what we, what what I would recommend. It's about finding a way to connect to again with whatever's manageable and easy, with whether it's a circle, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a mentor. Uh, and if it's someone you haven't met, but it's a teacher, you, like we, you said, there's a lot of resources online. There's people I like to listen to online. I think, oh, I think that person's quite good. If they come up on my feed, I like to hear what they have to say. Might not have met them, but I've, I've got a sense that I think the person has, has a gift I like to benefit from. So it's still, a, a, you know, there's still the sense of one is benefiting from a teacher. And obviously the closer the connection, the better. But we have to stress this as well, because uh, that's what's going to guide feed and fuel this journey. Now, earlier on in, in our discussion, you talked about how Ramadan um, enhances or we should seek to enhance the personal character, our personal selves during this month. How does one do that uh, in Ramadan? How does one improve uh, one's akhlaq, one's commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Uh, we may have, for example, a number of uh, various traits within our personalities that um, we've yet not addressed and and these traits may have negative impacts on the people around us. How do we use this month and utilize its blessings to improve our individual characters? Yeah, I think there's there's two things, which again, it's this convergence. They both feed into it. If you go back to the fasting, go back to the first verse, we brushed over the word taqwa very quickly. But if we were to go back and reflect on it briefly, the opening verse of the passage, it says that fasting was prescribed like it was on those before you, because it, it has a consequence in you. لَعَلَّكُمْ uh, تَتَّقُونَ Now, it's a present tense verb, so there's this idea that you would develop a habitual practice of taqwa, something you regularly display. It's become practice, it's not become experience. اتقاء in the Arabic language, تَتَّقُونَ, uh, the, you know, the noun from it is ittiqa. Ittiqa in it comes from wiqaya, which means protection. And ittiqa means to protect yourself. Uh, they use it in classical Arabic. If somebody is like, uh, you know, about to strike you and you parry off the blow, then you've protected yourself. That's ittiqa. That's why taqwa has often been translated as fearing God, mindfulness of God. But right at the heart of it is, it's about protecting yourself from what's going to hurt you. And that's why they say the most basic level of taqwa, they say is... Uh, uh, obeying the commands and avoiding the prohibitions because that's the, at the baseline what's going to hurt you because if you don't do what you're told to do and you do what you've not been what you've been told not to do then you're just playing with all of the consequences and there's consequences in this life consequences in character and the consequences in the next life that's the most um, non-care of self if you like in the in the bigger sense you've utterly exposed yourself to to destruction if you like so the most basic level of taqwa is about uh, understanding where the boundaries are and staying within them. So there's about a bit of learning that has to happen, which is why we've talked about learning today. How is fasting a fuel of that? Because you're learning you're, this God consciousness that uh, you have the ab ability through intention and resolve by following the Messenger of Allah to hold back from the most immediate desires. And if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. It's as simple as that. It's a school in self-checking, which is what it's at the heart of this protecting yourself. So if you can abstain from food, you can abstain from bad characteristics. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching us how to mm -hmm. restrain ourselves in this month. 
And because it's a season, and that goes back to your first question, it's a season where this is easier. That's why we should use it. Like I said, the fasting is just the foundation. What are you going to build on it? And that's why the ulama say uh, the baseline level of taqwa is this staying within the boundaries. Taqwa al-amma, they say is min al-dhunub, is from sins. Taqwa al-khasa, they say is min al-uyub, which means if you're going to build something on top of that, build it by uh, cutting off from yourself your bad character traits. That's why some of the ulama, they say when Ramadan comes, uh, one of my teachers used to say, the best good deed you could do in all of Ramadan is choose one trait of yours that's not good and get rid of it. That's the best good deed in all of Ramadan. The reason why is because if you could succeed in 30 days to control whether it's your temper or your tongue or whether it's your impatience or whether it's whatever it might be, and you can maintain that, you've transformed yourself. Uh, and what more would you want after this month other than to be transformed? And so the, the message is, yes, the fast is a foundation. It's a foundation on which we are meant to be building. And so if we could look into it and say, what we can do in this season to fix a trait, to change a trait, and that's where the Quranic recital comes, you see, because it's going to give you so much insight right in front of you and something might hit you one day that I want, I want to be like that I want to be strong like that I want to be able to handle that and you make a prayer say oh Allah please make me like that show me the way and you take some steps in that that's what more would you want this is it this is the transformative Ramadan now I understand that uh, Ramadan is divided into three tiers or three sets of ten days uh, the first ten days being uh, that of mercy, the second ten being that of forgiveness, the third, the latter portion being that of protection from the from the fire. Uh, where does this come from, and how do we incorporate this understanding into our month's practice? Yeah, so this comes in some hadiths. It's quite funny. I mentioned it in the beginning of my khutbah yesterday, mm. and a very polite man came up and said, "By the way, this hadith is weak. Uh, I've not, I don't, did not investigate it." Then or now, so I can't comment on that statement. But I said, no, thank you very much. I said, that, you know, the ulama say you can't build a, a, a fard or a haram on a weak hadith, but you can use it for virtuous actions. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was satisfied. So, alhamdulillah, so that ended our exchange after Jummah yesterday. Uh, all I will say, this comes in, in, in the hadiths. And what we can do with it, well, there's a couple of things. First of all is, again, if you just zoom out, what... You know, what, what does it mean to experience mercy? It's to be basking in the gifts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does it mean, forgiveness? It's to be really feeling this sense that, Oh Allah, I, I, I need you. It's directing yourself with neediness. And what's the last emotion if you think about self, you know, being, look at the phrase, Al-Idq min nar The phrase implies that almost the person feels hell-bound. And the person is saying, please, oh Allah, just remove this, uh, you know, etq is like you're, you know, you're, you're enslaved. Re- remove this chain, which is dragging me. Please free me. I want to run away. What's the emotion of that? It is desperation. And if you look at how the month continues, that's how we are meant to be advancing, which is why the last 10 is the 10 of i'tikaf, 
It's the 10 of extra night prayers. It's the 10 where we really want to be just upping the, the level. And so this image, you know, if you just want to zoom out and just call it right now, the sense of desperation, that's what suits the last 10. The sense of turning to Allah in need suits another level of upping, if you like, which is in the middle. And the sense of realizing the sheer gift and opportunity and giving and generosity, and if you, in your words, excitement of what it directed yourself to the ocean, that's how we should start the month. And so just in terms of a sense of a trajectory, that's what the trajectory should feel like. You're basking, you're seeking out of need, and then you're desperate. Uh, uh, so that the peak comes at the end, which is what we, we pray for our lives as well. The peak comes at the end. Uh, that we ask for our best deeds to be our last deeds. It's how we end, is how our deeds are sealed. And the other part of obviously affects dua, uh, asking for mercy, asking for forgiveness, asking for salvation. Otherwise, every day in Ramadan has all of these. Now, I want to ask you about maybe some uh, unsavory possibly traits that exist uh, within the Muslim community or even in the Muslim world. I mean, Ramadan, of course, can be uh, a very tiring commitment. And um, many uh, TV companies know that um, you've got an active audience or a, an audience who you can, um, uh, who, who possibly will be sitting down before iftar in particular, uh, uh, waiting for iftar. And, and there is a, there's a prime audience there who, who may access soaps or Netflix today or, you know, uh, various. Uh, uh, things that may be on TV. There is this, uh, I remember in Egypt um, a few years back, there was this, um, there was uh, a, a soap opera that became a very popular soap opera because it, it was positioned just before Iftar. Um, I come from a, a very, uh, you know, a Gujarati background, right, where my parents always told me that the TV should be shut in Ramadan, right? And we actually used to put a cloth over the television mm-hmm. during Ramadan so we wouldn't be uh, enticed to, uh, to, to watch the TV on, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, is this a bad thing for, for Muslims? And if it is, um, how do we overcome this type of trivializing Ramadan and, and trivializing its, its minutes? So here we have to be quite tricky. There's something about ourselves and there's something about the community. And we have to look at this from both angle, uh, angles. When it comes to the community, we have to realize that the sharia of the Prophet ﷺ is a vast path. Uh, and everyone's welcome. And everyone's invited. And that's why there's so much in the sharia, even the passage of Ramadan. If you look at it really, really carefully... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is tugging at so many heartstrings so that we would be moved to fast. So it starts by saying, you, you'll get taqwa. People did it before, so you can do it too. It was good for them, it'll be good for you. It's only a few days, don't worry. Then it's, oh, if you're sick, don't worry. Then it's, if you can't do it, do it like this. And it's, oh, the Quran came down. Then it's, I don't want it to be difficult for you. I want it to be easy for you. And that you would remember Allah. And then it was... Uh, the next verse says, uh, I'll, I'll answer the call when you call on me, so why don't you answer me? I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing the translation, but the point of the passage is it's coming at so many different angles so that we would be moved. Some of us are moved by the, I want to have taqwa. Some are moved by, you're right, I'm ashamed. You answer my du'as, I should answer you as well. Some are moved by, you know, 
there's so many reasons to be moved, and the whole Sharia is like that. Uh, it's part of the Rahma, Al Amma, you know, the, the huge Rahma of the Quran and the Rahma embodied in the person of the Prophet. And so we have to understand that everyone's welcome. That's why I don't want to belittle the Samosa culture or the Qataif culture, which is these are cultures developed over time so that children, so that people who might not have so much more uh, that appeals to them at this stage have some reason to feel apart. And everyone has to feel apart. That's our duty. If you want to call us leaders in the small L sense, that everyone has to feel apart. No motive should be too small. For someone to feel a part of this huge celebration of revelation through communal devotion and communal eating, which is what Ramadan signifies. And so I would never belittle. And so this idea of the Ramadan TV, which we have to come to now, but before I come to that, well, let's come to that, then I'll come to the personal. When it comes to the Ramadan TV thing, uh, again, it's kind of like the samosa, right? Which is, oh, there's a series, it starts, it's a 30-day series. Often they're religiously themed. So I, I do remember when I was in Jordan, it's a very, very good series, actually. They consulted a number of scholars uh, on it. It was a series just called Umar. And it's just like a seerah of the Prophet Wasallam. You know, you'll find it online in, with p- p- subtitles. That was Ramadan TV on NBC, like when I was in Jordan. Uh, so it's like religiously themed. It's kind of getting people to think a bit. It gets the family together. It's before the iftar. Uh so all I'll say is it's become part of this cultural phenomenon. I wouldn't off the bat say people are wrong to gather the family together, do the TV, do the smosa, do the iftar, and then go to the mosque. So that's part of their routine. All I will say, which is us about ourselves now, which the first part was social commentary, you see, is to make sure that we understand people have to feel welcome. When we look at ourselves, we have to realize the month isn't about TV. The month is not primarily about entertainment. The month is primarily about putting Allah and His Messenger first, putting ourselves last, engaging in an act of discipline and devotion. But for people who don't do that all year long, then just to say no to these other things which aren't part of the main duty uh, wouldn't also be wise. And so what what we can do is ultimately say, have a program that works, you know, have think about it, your Quran program, your Taraweeh program, your mosque program, your family time. Uh, and what's outside of that, of what's halal, uh, there's no harm in partaking of it. And that's why things were made halal. Halal is, uh, you know, the scholars of legal theory, they say halal is actually a, a positive legal statement. Allah said it is halal. Why? So we can partake in it. And the wisdom of it is, it gives us a spectrum from which to energize ourselves, draw refreshment, draw relaxation, and then go into the worship. That's why even the verse of fasting talks about it. At night time, Allah says, eat, drink, uh, uh, approach your spouses. Uh, why? It's saying it's, it's not 30 months of just, you know, nothing. Have enjoyment. Have some pleasure. Because this is what's going to fuel you. And so that's all I'll say. Everyone should look within themselves. What do they need? Or their family time. Family time is important. What's a reasonably good management of family time? But make sure you have your other time as well. And so that this doesn't become just a month of uh, lots of TV or a month of lots of late night partying or whatever it might so be. What I'm getting from you, Dr. Sahel, is uh, one needs to proactively plan this month and schedule 
very important parts of this month into into one's calendar. Is that is that a fair assessment of what you're saying? Well, that is the spirit of what I'm saying. People do these things differently. Some people are proper planners, like it's based on times. Some people are proximate planners, that like tarawih and iftar plans the day for them, meaning I have to obviously eat at that time. I'm going to go to the mosque. And after the mosque, I'll read Quran and I'll do some family time in the middle. And I'd like to, during this month, try to read a khatam or try to do... So it's the, there's, a, there's an approximate plan. But you have to be smart enough to make sure that the, whatever your, your intention is happens and to revisit it if it's not happening. Now, can I ask, there's, there seems to be, at least for me, there's a tug of war between the communal aspects and the individual aspects of Ramadan. So we inevitably engage in more community activities during this month. We go to iftar parties. Of course, tarawir prayer uh, is, is every evening. And these are the community, communal aspects, which in some ways brings us closer to the Muslim community, especially here in the West, where we may not regularly attend the masajid, or we may not regularly meet with uh, Muslims beyond our immediate family. This gives us an opportunity to reconnect with, with the Muslim community. But sometimes this can be at the expense of self-reflection, of time that you spend alone in your personal ibadat, in reading the Qur'an, as you said, and contemplating the Qur'an. Should there be a tension here between the communal and the individual aspects? There is a tension here and everywhere, actually, within the sacred law. And why is that? Because the sacred law is ultimately directing ourselves to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is right at the heart of it. But part of the vision of the sacred law is that we have to take the community with us as well. Uh, Surah Al-Asr says, all people lose in time, except for those who believe and do good deeds and have a communal focus. That's the summary of it. You have to, there's an enjoining to truth and enjoining to sabr. But the point is, you invest in community. And so the sacred law, all of it, has a, has a view of investing in community. The person who wins in Surah Al-Asr's framing, the person who wins is not the one who makes it to the finish line first. It's the one whose eye is on the finish line and they're taking people with them. And they're helping as many people. Because what is what is tawasi bi sabr in Surah Al-Asr? What does it mean? Sabr means not giving up right at its heart. You have a resolving, don't give up. So if you see people around you giving up, you just encourage them. Say, okay, you didn't do the prayer yesterday. It's all right. We can do it today. How about we, we, we do it together today? That's tawasi bi sabr. It's simple as that. Wherever people are at, maybe they're not wearing hijab or starting to wear the hijab or just starting to pray or exploring fasting for the first. It doesn't matter. Wherever people are at, tawasi bi sabr is to help them take the next best step in their lives. Tawasi bil haq is to remind them there is a step forward. Uh, and so in this sense, all of the sharia is communal. And in this sense, the, the, the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam, what he represents, it is a Muhammadan ideal, if you like. It is that you're with Allah and with the people. And being with the people doesn't cut you from Allah. Being with Allah doesn't cut you from the people. We're all weak and we hit many times. But if there's such a thing as what you could call the Muhammadan ideal, it's this. That's why, you know, the Isra, you know, the highest night journey was not the end of his mission, it was the beginning of the Sharia then, which is the whole Medinan stage, which is all about people and community and law and civilization. But there was no moment where the Prophet Ali Islam is cut off from that uh, high 
indescribably high connection. Look at the Burda of Al-Busir, which praises the Prophet wasallam. What's so interesting is the last section of praise is actually about the jihad of the Prophet wasallam, which embodies purely being in the world, protecting people. And the section just before that is the Isra and the Mi'raj. And so just to say that we have to understand the Muhammadan ideal, being like our Prophet wasallam, is to care about his people, to care about his community, is to realize that being together with them is a part of what fuels people. But obviously, that's not an end of its own, is to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there's a sort of what you like tension, because we're directed into two directions, and we want to somehow give each of these their, their due. So feeding each other's fast was recommended in, 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 in the sunnah. Therefore, feeding people iftar is from the sunnah. That would mean talking to them. If you're talking to them, you're not reading the Quran at that time. So we have to engage that with an intention, which is I'm doing this to follow the sunnah of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I'm bringing happiness into the heart of people by doing light conversation. Maybe I'm reminding them about something that will be good for them. But the goal is not socializing as well. You have to find a way to have your time for your worship and your prayer. So all I will say is the community in one sense is part of the sacred duty. And being alone with Allah is the fuel uh, that we all have to seek and there has to be balance. Uh, people in previous communities, yes, you know, uh, they would find ways to minimize work, minimize, socializing, minimize all sorts in this blessed month. But minimize doesn't mean no family and no, you know, none of these, uh, uh, these moments. But all I will say is we have to find our balance. So everything has its due. If we approach the social part of the month, we just approach it with a good intention, uh, bringing happiness into the hearts of these uh, of, of 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 believers. That's sadaqah. Ramadan's about sadaqah as well. This is sadaqah. The time with people intended as sadaqah. Uh, but make sure that it's not all socializing, not all in your example TV uh, as well. Can I ask you about tarawih salah? I mean, we've in a sense ritualized or made it a very important activity. In Ramadan, which it is, it's a, it should be a, and it's part of that community experience that you you spoke of. But if a Muslim decided that uh, they're going to pray Isha in the mosque, so they do their fariyad in in Jama, which is of course of high reward, then spend uh, the remainder of of the night or portion of the night in Qiyam uh, on their own uh, for self reflection, for to develop one's own character, because they preferred that as a way of reaching a closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, would there be a problem with that type of attitude or, or course? Uh, not at all, actually. What we find is that uh, there's a whole spectrum amongst our jurists about how tarawih prayer works. If we could have a few marks about tarawih prayer first, the Prophet wasallam, he engaged in extra worship in this month. People started joining his prayer. He didn't... Excuse me. He didn't want that to be seen as, as a duty. It's part of the rahmah. And so he then made it private. At the time of Sayyidina Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, he saw lots of people gathering in the mosque to do this extra prayer in Ramadan. Uh, and at that point he said, well, if we're already doing these, let's just unite and do it together. And in the presence of the companions... The, again, this is what I said about lived experience in the presence of those who were taught by the Prophet they instituted this ritual then 
of group prayer, 20 rak'ahs, finishing the Qur'an within the month. Uh, they did it in Mecca, they did it in Medina, and then it went out into the other Muslim centers. Uh, in the uh, Muatta of Imam Malik, you'll see hadiths, which uh, two hadiths I'll mention. One is about, it was a very long prayer, first of all. What they used to do was they would do four rak'ahs in group, two and two. Then they would pause for the same length of time. People would do personal worship. And there in Mecca, they do tawaf. Then they do four rak'ahs, two and two. Then they pause for the same amount of time. So it's a long ritual. In some of the hadiths of the Muatta, you get the sense of they had to rush home to do suhoor because it was just a long communal worship. In one of the hadiths of the Muatta, uh, Sayyidina Umar, he, he gets brought into seeing this group prayer. And he makes a remark and he says, ni'matil bid'atu hadihi, rough phrasing. He says, what a great bid'ah this is. What a great... Uh, new ritual or what a great um yeah what a great ritual this has this has become and so the, the one thing the scholars take from this is umar himself wasn't habitually praying this he inaugurated it in the presence of all the leading companions uh it's a sunnah of islam according to all the muslim jurists but the hadith would imply he wasn't a regular there and he went to say oh what, what a great thing this has become uh, and that's why the jurists, the, you know, the schools of uh, Sunni law, they have a sort of spread of how they view what this ritual signifies. They all consider it a sunnah. Uh, the Prophet والسلام, uh, emphasized the sunnah of the khulafa. And this is built on the sunnah of the Prophet والسلام, with extra Ramadan worship and the hadith about Qiyam of Ramadan. So they all consider this sunnah, that there should be a ritual gathering in the mosques of extra rakahs. And the classical school said 20 rakahs. In the mosques of Islam is a public ritual, unique, because there's no other public gathering outside of the five of the prayers. But what's the status of joining it now? So according to uh, Abu Hanifa, it's a strong sunnah that every community should have public uh, taraweeh prayers. And for the individual, it's recommended to join that community as opposed to praying it by themselves. But they can do it by themselves as well. For a shafi'i, it's all equal. It's equal whether you join the public prayer, which is a sunnah to be there, or whether you pray those 20 rakahs at home. And for Malik, may Allah be pleased with them all, he said, if the public ritual is happening, it's better to pray at home. Why is it better to pray at home? Because the general thing about sunnahs is that they're private, and this hadith of Umar implies that he was praying it privately. But if the public ritual is not happening, then you should go and support it. So it might sound odd to, to listen to this, but there should be a public ritual. People should be taking part, and that's the communal uh, um, preservation of what the Sahaba practiced, and it's the communal gathering to recite the Quran, and so we should support the communal. And as individuals, then, there's a sort of spectrum within which every individual should ultimately judge what is better for them. If someone's memorized the Quran and they, they, it's better for them to pray at home to review, that's an intention. If people find it better to pray with their family and otherwise the family is going to watch the Ramadan TV and they're going to be off being religious, they know it's better to do it with family. That's a, that's a good intention. And if somebody feels if I stay at home, I'm going to be watching, the, you know, I'll, I'll get distracted and I won't do worship. It's better to be in the mosque. So there is a spread. Taraweeh is sunnah and it should be public. And after that, we have the agency, if you like, to choose and decide 
what will be the most advantageous for our worship? That's a really great answer. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left. I know you have to give a presentation today at uh, a masjid in South London, so I don't want to keep you so long. But I want to ask you about zakah and uh, the value of zakah. I know that many Muslims choose to designate this month, the month of Ramadan, as the month to pay the zakah. Can you explain what zakah is uh, as a an individual act of ibadat, but also as a communal act and how that contributes to uh, these, the, the communal uh, uh, atmosphere that you talk about, uh, you, you speak very eloquently about uh, in, in the discussion of Taraweh and other actions that, that enhance the community. Uh, so zakat is right at the heart now of what I'm going to call this communal vision. And all the five pillars are really the pillars of a civilizational view, of a civilization that the Prophet wasalam brought into the world and established in Medina. Uh, but if we go right to the zakat, there's a couple of things to think about very, very briefly. So zakat on the individual level is about realizing your wealth is not yours. It's really a- the ABCs of, of Iman. You do not own your wealth uh, except in trust. It's Allah's. Lillahi ma fis samawati wal ard. Anfiqu mimma ja'alakum mustakhlafina fihi. Spend of that which he made you his representatives in. That's the ABCs of Iman. I didn't earn it from my intelligence. Uh, I didn't earn it through any uh, self-deservedness. It's Allah's and he apportioned it and some of it is mine. And so within it, he, the real owner, has determined rights. Zakat is not all of those rights, but it's a particular right. This particular right is called zakat because it purifies if we don't give it to its rightful owners, who are the needy Muslims, we are the ones uh, consuming somebody else's money. We are impurified, meaning there's a lack of blessing. The food in your fridge is not 100% yours, so how dare you eat it? The clothing you're wearing is not 100% yours, how dare you wear it? The house you're providing your children is not 100% theirs, so how dare you make that their shelter and not make them aware that it's, not, it's somebody else's home to some proportion? That's the idea of impurity. In Allah Tayyib la yaqbalu illa Tayyib. Allah is pure. If you want him, if you want him to accept you, then you, your person, has to be pure. Zakat is a part of that. Getting the purity back into your wealth, you're the beneficiary. Uh, but then the other part of zakat, as soon as you realize you're the beneficiary, you have to do it. You are the one being blessed by it. Then you enter into the communal because it's going to a person. When you enter the communal. Zakat is it's important to realize it's not all of Muslim giving. It's a particular form of Muslim giving, which is a pillar of this community. That's why it goes to Muslims. Because zakat is, is spelling out explicitly what the prayers in the mosques also spell out. And Ramadan in its iftar spells out. And hajj in its global visitation spells out is that iman is a community. Being a Muslim means you're invested in a community. Uh, the Arabic phrase is an ummah. You are part now of a family. And the family is real. Brotherhood is not lip service. Zakat is saying, and that's the first pillar. You see, that's why they're all communal. The first pillar is saying, whoever utters two words, you have no right to keep them out. That's it. If they say the two words, they can demand your zakat. The very same afternoon. If they say the two words, they will stand in your mosque. So they will lead you in your prayer if they happen to know more than you of this Qur'an. If they say the two words, they are with you on the Hajj. So these five pillars then are a vision for an Ummah, a civilization united in Iman. Faith is real. The family is real. 
And that's why the zakat, the message of zakat is faith is family. That's the most important thing. So just like we're told to look after all people, we're also told, shame on you, especially if your brother is hungry. Because there's a double tie. Blood is a tie. It has to be honored. And so zakat is telling you iman is a tie. It has to be honored. You have to realize poor Muslims have a right on you and you have a duty to know about them and vice versa. The other thing about zakat, which is quite fascinating on the level of community, which is this uh, sunnah or fard, the classical schools have debated, on zakat being spent where you are, actually. And the where in classical fiqh is actually on the level of cities. Literally where you are, your zakat should be invested there. Again, between sunnah and fard, and scholars have debated you know, uh, when you send it away from that. I'm not talking about the overseas part, but what I want to talk about is the message of zakat is actually you need to become invested in your actual community, the community that you actually meet and have the ability to sit with. You have to understand the neighbor in faith has a special haq. We have to remind each other about that. The Muslims who are near you have a right. They're your close family. Think of them as first cousins. And you have to develop within your network speciality. Some people should be specialized. And who are the Muslims in the area? What are their needs? Because shame on us if we're doing this wonderful Ramadan and Quran and being spiritual and the next door neighbor is a Muslim who's anxious, who's having a miserable Ramadan because they can't, they're about to, they can't pay next month's rent. Landlord is saying, leave it, then shame on us all. This is, this is the point. So that's just the idea of community. Why is it also central? Because if we can develop this community of care throughout wherever there's Muslims who are settled, what are we really doing? We're preserving Iman. We're making people's... Because not everyone will come to the mosque. But if they know you're going to look after them, they'll start coming to your mosque as well. It preserves... Uh, Islam is preserved through community. The five pillars and zakat at the core is about investing in community. And making people know that becoming, belonging to Muslims is something of consequence. They can be proud of and we, we transmit. This is transmission. Uh, why do Muslims pay in Ramadan? A couple of reasons. But right at the heart of it, if you were to just do a social analysis, it's because they never learned the rules properly. Because Ramadan, zakat is not meant to be tied to Ramadan. It's meant to be tied to your own economic history. Once a year, since you last crossed the Nisab threshold and became rich... That's when you're meant to calculate and pay. It's not a Ramadan duty. People like to pay in Ramadan because of extra rewards and because it's a lunar month they can keep track of, because charities are blasting you know, everywhere. It's easy to keep track. But just the, the lesson for people who are listening is try to learn the rules. You can pay in Ramadan, but you're sort of prepaying because you should have your own date, which is not in Ramadan. Uh, and what you're doing is you're estimating what you owe, and on your real date you actually calculate. So all I'll say for short is, please reach out, try to learn the rules of fasting. Uh, I I, uh, I run a National Zakat Foundation. If you go online, nzf.org.uk, if you click on Calculate, there's a lot of resources, guides, calculator, one-on-one -on -one consultations, a knowledge bank. Educate yourself and make sure that you're doing it properly. And I will put a link to your organization in the show notes of, of this podcast. One last question, uh, Dr. Sahel. Um, itikaf, uh, we have to, uh, or it's a sunnah, an established sunnah, uh, to spend some time in reflection in a masjid. 
Now, this looks like a very major undertaking for, for Muslims because you have to, you're isolated, you're in a masjid and you have to, uh, you're away from the hustle and bustle of the society, but also away from your family. Um, what should one hope to achieve from remaining in the masjid for a number of days during this month of Ramadan? So first of all, in terms of what we're hoping to achieve, there's something we didn't really mention at the beginning, but we really needed to, which was we've hinted at the importance of following the Prophet the, the Quran says, In kuntum tuhibboon Allah fattabi'uni, qul in kuntum tuhibboon Allah fattabi'uni, yuhibbkum Allah. Say, if you love Allah, then follow me, Allah will love you. And so the goal of spirituality, really, uh, rectifying faults, going closer to the Quran, the real goal is we're ultimately trying to be more like Him. Because He is the model of what Allah loves. And so even when fasting, even when approaching the Qur'an, what would uh, add to that power if right at the beginning we also bring to our hearts we are doing this to follow the Messenger? Because it's the following that will give us our, our destination. It's the following that will take us out of self-centeredness and make this a truly spiritual journey. Uh, we're trying to understand Allah through how Allah revealed Himself to Muhammad wasallam. We don't access, he accesses. We are not the model, he is the model. Spirituality is being, to the best of our ability, a model of him. So that we can have something of what he received. Uh, uh, that's, that's at the heart of it. So with the i'tikaf again, it's a reminder of that. It's his i'tikaf. It's his being in the mosque for these 10 days. Uh, and so we are following him. And in following him, what is this 10-day ultimately going to allow us to do is to shut off from all these distractions. And in this shutting off, it's right where we started. It's just about allowing the heart to receive something. Because the connection with the Qur'an is not a rational one. It's a spiritual one. It's about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealing to us about himself. That's what the Qur'an really is. And it's about getting that connection, getting that knowledge, getting that guidance, learning about Allah in the world, getting that moment of really uh, mirroring something of the perfections of the, of the Messenger, that's what we are ultimately seeking. And cutting off, cutting off, cutting off, this is from the Sunnah. That's where Ramadan started. It was from the cutting off. So we all have to have some moment of cutting off. That's what night prayer is meant to be. That the so emphasized but not made fard on us. Because night prayer is a time of cutting off. So everyone needs to have in the day and the night, in the week, in the month, in the year, times when you're alone. Times when there isn't a phone. And there isn't people. And there isn't work. And it could be long and it could be short. But it's just to know that we have to be directed to Allah. And we're trying to have that connection. That heart connection. That spirit connection. And in this season of Ramadan, with all that we've described, now you're in the house of Allah, and there's this extended period of being devoted, then it's just a, it's a very powerful and beautiful thing. Now, what, what I draw some solace from, which is just that many of us will not be able to do the 10 days, whether it's your work or your family or, if, for example, you're in the charity space, which is new for me. The charity space is 
there's a lot of communicating with people in this time, educating people in this time. Uh, and so what I draw some solace from in the I'tikaf is that uh, in the school of Malik, certainly, uh, there's a sunnah I'tikaf of just a day and a night. Uh, and so what, uh, if someone can't do the 10 days, if you can do a day and a night, uh, just pick a time when it's easy for you, you know, a weekend, easy to park, whatever it might be, just the 24 hours within the mosque in the last 10 days, if you can arrange it, it's a very, 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 very beautiful thing. And for women as well, their i'tikaf uh, is within their, their home. And so what the scholars say is you designate a space in your home to be your mosque and you stick to that space. Uh, it could be a room, for example, and you stay there for uh, 10 days, you want to do the full or whatever you can manage. And so the whole community can take part in it, depends on other commitments, but if you can take part in a day and a night of this, uh, it will really uh, be a beautiful way to, to ex- think to experience, really. We, we aren't used to experiencing silence, actually. Again, as moderns, we have a lot of challenges. But to have a period, and really there's no, no superfluous phone, and no superfluous this, and no superfluous that, it's a beautiful thing. Dr. Saho Hanif, Jazakallah khair for your time today. It's been inspirational. Allah It's been beautiful talking to you and uh, learning. Because what happens is... Uh, it looks like the speaker is teaching, but actually there's a learning happening within the exchange because questions, they guide reflection. And so it's been a, a very educating and a beautiful exchange with you. Thank you very much, brother. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair.